Thank you for listening to the Valley Point Church Podcast. We are currently in the series, Is God? We hope it's a blessing to you. Welcome you to Valley Point Church. My name is Ben, and I'm one of the pastors here, and I'm alongside of our lead pastor, Eric Kohler. And this is a little bit of a unique day for us, and perhaps you've been a part of one of these FAQ Sundays in the past. But what we like doing, and I, and I think everyone enjoys these days, is throughout some of our series, we allow you to fill out different questions and submit those to us. And so as we wrap up, is God, we're going to attempt to answer the questions that you submitted over the last couple of weeks. And you did a very good job. This was one of our better responses this year, so thank you for that. And while we can't individually answer every question, we noticed that most of the questions all fell into three sort of primary categories. And so there were a lot submitted about suffering and going through difficult times, and the other category would be prayer, and then lastly, about the character of God. So those are the three categories we're going to be answering some questions about this morning, and I really love these days because I get the easy job. I get to just ask questions, and Pastor Eric gets to squirm in his seat and try to answer some of these. So let's give him a round of applause for being willing to do this for us. And are you ready to jump in today? I am absolutely ready, yes. All right, we're going to kick off in the category of prayer. And so here was the first question that was submitted for us to discuss today. A few weeks ago, you spoke on the Lord's Prayer. Can you take more time unpacking that prayer for us? I can, and I think that would be a lot of fun because the Lord's Prayer, to me, is something that is absolutely fascinating. And when I talked on this a couple of weeks ago, I shared the beginning is interesting because it says, and Jesus is talking to a crowd, and he says, I want you to pray this way, which is just a fascinating statement to me, like this is something that we should be doing. But I don't think God necessarily intended that we would just recite those words over and over and over again. That's not necessarily a bad thing, and we can do that. But I think the Lord's Prayer is really more of a model or how to pray. And so when Jesus delivered that, he gave us a template. And when you pray, whatever it is that you're praying for, we can kind of put those prayer requests into the template of the Lord's Prayer, which there's two parts to it. The first part is give credit and glory to the Almighty. And that's how it starts. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed, holy, separate, special, is your name. And so I think God wants us to give him credit, and that's how our prayers should begin. So that's the first part. The second part then is tell God what you need. And that's where we get into give us this day our daily bread, forgive us our trespasses, lead us not into temptation. These are all things that we need. And so Jesus, in the model prayer, said, Give glory to God, do that, and then step right in and to ask what you need. So I think that's the, the model for prayer. One of the phrases that I think is really fun to consider in the Lord's Prayer is the phrase, forgive us our trespasses. So when you look into the culture of what's happening during this conversation, 
Jesus is speaking to a distinctly Jewish crowd. And for them, asking for forgiveness in their prayers was something that they consistently did because Jewish people viewed sin as a debt. They didn't want debt. They got to get rid of debt. And that's why some of the versions of the Lord's Prayer will say, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. That's a sin that the Jewish people wanted to be removed from. And so that's just a fascinating part of the Lord's Prayer. There is so much that we can learn from it. Again, we can't forget that it starts by saying, pray this way, which that should be a call enough for us just to engage in giving glory to the Almighty and then telling God what we need. So, yes, we should do a two- or three-week series on that, unpack all of the different parts, tell Tyler to put that on the schedule for us. <laughs> we'll start next week. Yes. <laughs> so staying on the, the same topic of prayer, so if God knows all things, even before they happen, how can prayer change his mind? Well, this is a great question, Ben, and thanks to whoever asked that. We, we probably could spend all of our morning just thinking about this particular answer. Because I think it's fair to say when we pray, we don't change the mind of God. Prayer is something that actually changes us. And uniquely, what happens there is when we change, I think God changes in how he responds to us. But in his essence and in his nature as God, he does not change. So I'll I'll try to make sense of this. I think there's a theological response to this, and then there's a practical response as well. So in theological circles, there is a debate over whether God changes or not. And there's terms used for this, so we'll throw out some big theological terms here. It's the immutability of God or the mutability. So if God does not change, then he is immutable. If God does change, then he is a mutable God. Well, I think when you dive into Scripture and when you look at biblical theology what you discover is that God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So he is unchanging in his essence and in his character. So he is an immutable God. He's consistent all of the time. God was loving yesterday. He's loving today. He'll be loving tomorrow. God was just yesterday. He's just today, and he'll be just tomorrow. But you come across passages like what we find in Exodus chapter 32, So what we find in Exodus 32 is that Moses is having a private conversation with God. Moses is the primary leader of God's people. God has just given to Moses the Ten Commandments for covenant living. That happens in Exodus chapter 20. There's a few more things that transpire to the point where Moses is having this private conversation on the side of a mountain with God in Exodus chapter 32. But while they're having this fascinating conversation, God looks down into the camp where the people of Israel are. And he notices that they are forming a golden calf, and once it is formed, they begin to worship the image of the golden calf. Well, this is one of the big things in the Ten Commandments. Don't worship any idols. And so God observes this happening, and he gets upset. He becomes angry. And he tells Moses, I'm going to destroy my people. Uh, They have disobeyed me. And I can't handle this. 
And so what happens next is Moses begins this wrestling match with God where he says, God, you can't destroy your people. Don't do that. I, I beg of you, don't. And so there's a verse in Exodus chapter 32 that says, the Lord changed his mind about destroying his people. So it's a very confusing verse. So then what is actually happening? Because it appears that Moses somehow has figured out how to persuade the mind of God. Yeah, perhaps Moses was just really persuasive with his language, or there's something else that's happening there. And I want you to use a really big word. Okay, another big word. All right, well, (laughs) I think I've got another one. So what happens is, whenever you're looking at Scripture, when you come across something difficult like this, you really have to look into the language of what you find there. And often, there are figures of speech that are used in Scripture And you have to identify it and know it as a figure of speech so that you can interpret what's happening in the passage correctly. And so in Exodus chapter 32, there is a figure of speech that is called an anthropopathism. Oh, wow. Yeah. There's your next password. (laughs) Yes. Yeah, anthropopathism. So this is a figure of speech where we attribute to God a human emotion so that we can understand him, like the anger of God. And that's what we find. So a few weeks ago, when we talked about, is God good? I threw out the figure of speech that we often find in Scripture, the anthropomorphism, which is a figure of speech that attributes to God a human characteristic, like the eyes of God, or the hand of God, or the arm of God. Well, God is a spirit. He doesn't have eyes. He doesn't have hands. He doesn't have arms. So this is a figure of speech that helps us understand God a little bit in a known language. And so what we find here is an anthropopathism, which is a human emotion ascribed to God. And what we discover here is that God does not change in his essence or character, but he will change in how he responds to people based on what they say or do. And that's often tucked within the context of any particular story which we would also find in the story of Jonah as he went to Nineveh to, as a prophet to, to preach God to the people of Nineveh. Yeah, it's a, it's a great example. So God asked Jonah, go to Nineveh. The Ninevites are offensive to me. They are evil. Tell them to repent or I will destroy the city. So Jonah went. He delivered the message of repentance. People said, we prefer life over being destroyed. And so they indeed repented and God changed his course of action in terms of what was going to happen there. So he didn't change in his nature or in his character, but he did change in response to how people responded to him. So God will do that. There is a sense where you could say God has relational mutability. So in relationships, he will change how he responds based on how we respond to him, but his character... He was the same yesterday, today, and forever. So that's the theological answer with some big words. I think the practical part of that is, why pray if we can't really change the mind of God? I think we pray because God himself has invited us to do that, which is astonishing. God, the creator, the inventor, the one overall and above all, he invites little old me, and I'm nobody special. I'm no one unique, but he actually invites me to come into his majestic presence and tell him what I need after I've given him glory. 
And I know I do not take advantage of that enough, and probably the rest of us don't either. So I think we pray not to change the mind of God, but to change us. And we simply do it because he said, come boldly into my presence. So it's an invitation to pray from the Almighty. We should take advantage of it. And prayer can be a very encouraging thing, but even at times it can even be rather discouraging also, which kind of leads to the next question. And it's how should we rebound or keep moving forward after an unanswered prayer where God has remained silent to a prayer? Well, we live in an instant society, don't we? Mm -hmm. We want answers fast and we're not very patient people. And prayer just doesn't work that way. I think when we pray and when we're stepping boldly into the presence of God and when we're giving him things and we're asking for things, there has to be a tremendous amount of patience that goes with that. And you find this in Scripture. Sometimes people prayed almost for a lifetime before they received answers, and some received no answer, technically. So my encouragement would be, if you're praying for something and you don't have an answer right now, don't stop praying for that. You might have to buckle up and prepare for the long haul on that request. And don't be afraid to do that. Don't lose hope. I do believe God loves persistency in our asking. And so if you have been submitting something to God and it just feels like he's not paying attention or doesn't care because you haven't had that answer yet, don't give up persistently. Just keep stepping into the presence of God. And we have to be patient with that. I would say if you have prayed and you have requested something and maybe you didn't get what you wanted, so there was an answer. Maybe it was the opposite of what you prayed, and so you're very discouraged with that. My encouragement would be have a deep conversation with God about that hurt. And at some point in that gap there where we prayed and didn't get what we wanted and were discouraged, We have to trust that God ultimately knows what is best for us, even when it doesn't feel that good. So I think sometimes even when we get that non-answer or it's not what we want, there is a time where we just have to give that to the Almighty and understand he knows a little bit more about what I actually need than I do. But then would would it even be fair to say that I may have a prayer in my life that I consistently pray and it may never get answered, that God may never lift a silence for me, the side of heaven. Yeah, I think that's true. And even in Scripture, we have a few different examples. One is the Apostle Paul. So, pretty spiritual guy. (laughs) probably, Probably nobody more spiritual than the Apostle Paul. He had conversations with Christ and... He planted churches and traveled, and there is a prayer request where he asks for a thorn in the flesh to be removed from him. We don't really know what the thorn in the flesh was. It's not identified, but it's something that bothered him enough where he prayed, God, take this away from me, and God never did. He never did. So He had to live with that. And there is even an example of Jesus himself who had an unanswered prayer as well. Yeah, in the garden before Jesus was to be arrested and crucified, he prays to his father and says, if this cup of suffering can not happen, God, may that be a possibility, but 
nonetheless, not my will, but your will be done. And so there was a sense where I think Jesus even understood the weight of what was coming. And not just from the human physical suffering standpoint, but carrying the sins of the world on his shoulders. What a task. And he prayed if that cup could pass. And God didn't answer that request, but yet he submitted to his father's will. So whether be whether we be encouraged by prayer or even at times a little discouraged by prayer, it's important to keep praying. That's what we've been asked to do by God. Yeah, pray this way, give God credit, tell him what we need in persistency. So to move on to a different category, and this, there's a lot of um, reality in these next couple of questions, some vulnerability, and really appreciate the questions that came through. So here is uh, one dealing with some of the suffering that we can experience in life. It says, a year and a half ago, I miscarried and lost a baby at three months being pregnant. One of the things that helps me cope is the thought that one day I will go to hold my baby in heaven. The babies lost in miscarriage go to heaven, even though they have never had a chance to be saved. So whoever asked this is a very brave person. Thank you for submitting that and sorry for your loss. That's a, that's a very difficult thing. Tanya and I walked through a miscarriage 15 years ago and that was a very difficult time for us and so I can identify with this a little bit. The short answer to this is yes, I do believe that you will see your baby in heaven someday as well as all miscarried babies. We get a glimpse in Scripture of the response to this a little bit from King David in 2 Samuel chapter 12. And the story there is that David had a little baby. It was a little baby boy, and the boy was born and was very sick. And so in that moment of sickness, David went to the temple, and he prayed fervently for the health of that child. And he fasted, there was no food, and he continued to pray for a time period while the baby was sick, just begging God for the life of that child. Well, word came to David that the baby had died. And so what David did next confused some people, but he got up, he cleaned himself, and he dressed, and he ate. And so his advisors came to him and said, well, this is very confusing, we don't really understand what you're doing and why. And in 2 Samuel chapter 12, David says, that baby cannot come back to me. And then he makes a statement that's remarkable. And this is where we get a glimpse, I think, of what happens to children who die very young. He says, someday I will go and see my child, but he cannot come to me. So what we know of David is that he was a man after God's own heart. David put his faith in God. And so I have full confidence in saying David knew when he passed that he would be going and stepping into the presence of God. He knew that. And so in that moment, perhaps information from God, I don't really know, he declares, I know where I'm going when I die. And when I get there, this baby that has passed, I will see him. And so there was confidence in David. He was able to get up from his morning and get dressed and eat because he knew that that little baby was safe in the presence of the Lord. It is my position 
Here's what I believe happens in these situations. I believe that God credits the payment for sin that Christ provided for all. That God gives that payment to infants and to those who are not mentally capable of getting to a place in their life where they recognize I'm a sinner and I need the forgiveness and the leadership that God offers. So yes, I'm going to trust in Jesus alone. Not everyone's able to come to that conclusion. Mm -hmm. Certainly a young baby and those who don't have the mental capacity to come to that conclusion. It's not that they earn the forgiveness of God. It's just that God in his sovereignty provides for them based on the sacrifice of Christ, eternal salvation. And so, yes, I think babies who have been miscarried, infants who die at a very young age, and those who don't have the mental capacity to come to the conclusion that I'm a sinner and I want to trust in Jesus alone will be safe in the Lord. I wish Scripture were, there was more clarity on this, but we do know that God is loving and just and whatever he chooses to do will be good and right. And there, there are several areas, I believe, in Scripture that many of us wish were clearly laid out. And yeah. it, it makes it difficult to come to conclusions. But uh, another area where there's, it's a bit vague, which leads us into the next question of ours. And the question is, I have been asked about my faith. How can your God be good if he allows so much suffering in the world? When asked these things, I often freeze and really don't know how to answer. You know, I think sometimes it's okay to not have an answer for things. It keeps us humble. It keeps us leaning into God and dependent on him for giving us wisdom and insight. I think it also helps us to avoid throwing out cliches, which cliches are very dangerous. and We should avoid them at all costs. You know, there's Christian cliches drive me crazy. It's uh, God helps those who help themselves. Well, that's not even found in the Bible. That's a cliche. As a matter of fact, God helps those who are helpless. So the opposite of that is actually true. We throw out these cliches in order to comfort people sometimes, and it really is a waste of time. So I think it's okay to not have an answer so that we don't give out cliches. This particular question is very difficult and probably one of the greatest hindrances to people responding to Christianity. See, evil and suffering, and if God is good, if he is righteous and just, all of this, why doesn't he just take care of evil and suffering? I think it's important to remember when we think about this that God is not the source of evil and suffering. Sin is. And so we have to be careful not to attribute evil to God and suffering to God But it still exists. It's around us, and so God allows that to happen. He's not the source of it, but he hasn't stopped it quite yet. And so why? Why doesn't God do something a little bit more? Well, as best as I possibly can, I think here are two thoughts. For the unbeliever, someone who's not quite there in terms of their relationship with God, they haven't put their faith alone in Christ and his sacrificial work, I think evil and suffering have the opportunity when someone gets to the end of themselves and they're just at a very low spot because of what's happening to them or what they observe around them, that it's an opportunity to say, maybe, just perhaps, I need to give God a shot. And I have done everything else 
There is nothing else for me to grab, so I will run into the presence of God. And I think evil and suffering that we see around us and happening to us does have the potential for an unbeliever to push them a little bit closer to God. And that's a good thing. I think for the believer, when we see this around us and when we experience it in our own life, it's a chance for us to confess, to make sure that our relationship with God, there's nothing blocking that, that it's clear, and that we're honoring him with our lives. And so for the unbeliever and for the believer, I think it's an opportunity when we see this around us and when we experience it ourselves a chance to really dig deep and maybe scoot a little bit closer to God. Again, a very difficult thing to answer and often the obstacle that keeps people from coming to Christ. I would just caution everybody, and I, I say this to myself as well, sometimes it's just hard to give an answer. And it's okay to say, I just don't know. I just don't know. But perhaps God is being patient and giving unbelievers and believers the chance with the evil and suffering around us to repent, to change, and to turn our faces towards him. Mm-hmm. And that, that, that's the argument. Many, many assume that because of the existence of evil and the existence of suffering, that that must mean that there is no existence of a God, or at least a good God and an all-powerful God, because after all, if there was an all-powerful God, he would end suffering, mm-hmm. at least in our minds. But in reality, that the Bible does teach that God is good. And he is all-powerful. And in fact, one day, he will resolve the sin issue and the, the, the issue of suffering. Yeah, this is very true. So in Revelation 21, verse 4, if you want something to read today, find that chapter. So there's chapter 21 in Revelation and then chapter 22, the last two chapters of the whole Bible. Chapter 21 gives us a description of heaven. So if you've ever wondered, you know, what is heaven going to be like? What's there in all of its majesty and glory? Revelation 21 gives you a great picture, a small picture, not everything, but a little bit of what heaven will be like. Well, in Revelation 21.4, it actually says, there will be no more crying or pain or suffering or death. And then there's the statement, these things will be gone forever, which is remarkable. So, If we wanted to give an answer, we could technically say, well, at some point, God will do away with all of this. When will he do it? Well, we don't know. It hasn't happened yet. But one day, he will do away with it. The challenge there is, at that point, there is no more opportunity to repent and to experience the forgiveness that Christ offers. So that's kind of a scary thing. It's encouraging. But at that point, opportunities are over. So the evil and suffering we experience now... It could be God's patience with us, helping us to turn to him. Again, one of those areas that difficult to navigate, hard to understand, as well as I, I believe this, this next question kind of, kind of parallels with this in regards to God's character and how he functions. It says, as a believer, I know how to identify and trust in God's goodness when I'm losing my footing. I have my own experiences to pull from. But how can someone who has yet to experience or at least yet to identify God's love in them truly understand that God is indeed good? Well, a few thoughts. I think, first of all, you can't change the mind of someone else, and that's not our job and our responsibility. And sometimes we want to do that. We want to debate, and we want to 
help them, and so we can engage in conversations that may not actually be helpful. So we, we can't change the mind of someone. I think what we can do, secondly, is we can pray for them. And I have friends and people that I have a relationship with that would fit into this category, and I don't debate with them at all, but when I know they're walking through something troubling, which I think is really what's driving this question, I will often say to them, I'm praying for you, and sometimes they don't respond to that at all, and that's okay. Sometimes they're very grateful for that, which gives you a little bit of insight into what may be happening in their heart and in their mind, but I think praying for people that feel this way is a wonderful step. And then we have to actually generally pray for them. So if we say that, you know, you got to follow through and actually pray. I I think the third thing is we have to live like Jesus in front of them all of the time. We just have to. And this may be where it gets really difficult because we experience hardships as well. And so when we get stepped on, when the pressure is on us, what comes out? And are we living like Jesus in these moments. It's likely that someone who is not a believer in God or is wrestling with that, very unlikely that they're going to pick up a Bible and read about God or read about the life of Jesus. So they're not going to pick up the Bible and read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They're just not going to do it. Most of us, when we're walking through a hard time, don't do that either. So they're not going to pick up and read one of the Gospels, but they will read us So in reality, we're the fifth gospel, which should motivate all of us to be very, very careful everywhere that we go, where we live, where we work, and we play. We have to be on mission. We've got to live like Jesus. So important when trying to help somebody else see the goodness of God. Which is rather intimidating. Yes. And challenging because there's no way we're going to get this right every single time. But it is important that we're aware of this because whether fair or unfair, people are watching us. As if you identify yourself as a Christian, as a Christ follower, people are watching. How, how are you responding when tragedy occurs, when crisis arrives? How are you walking through life's difficulties? And it, it's, it's daunting to think that that's how some people are going to perceive who God is and who Jesus is, is through how we respond in life. Well, then there's sort of one question that weren't sure really how to categorize it, but <laughs> it, it does deal with the character of God. But does God have a sense of humor? <laughs> right, yeah. Well, yes. Look around the room. <laughs> right? I mean, there's your answer. I think God does. We read in Scripture that God created males and females, and we are created in his image. And so we laugh, we have a sense of humor, and I believe that's true of God as well. Now, we don't find in Scripture any verse that says God's rolling around somewhere laughing at a comedy act. But what we do find, which is kind of interesting, is in a few of the Psalms, we find God laughing at the nation's who walk away from him or run from him. So that's kind of sarcasm, which is funny when you think about it. So we can run away from God, and God kind of laughs, he scoffs at that. So I do believe that God has a sense of humor, yes. Mm -hmm. And there's a deduction that can occur that, you know, the creator of all things 
humor being one of them, would indeed need to have a sense of humor to create humor. And so that's all the time that we have today for the questions that you submitted. And what we're going to do is a few of them that we haven't discussed today, we're going to make them a part of our upcoming summer teaching series, which begins on Father's Day. So be looking forward to that. And I've had a lot of fun in this series. Have you guys just learning that God is listening, (laughs) that God is good, that he is indeed good, that he's actually not fair, which is a very good thing for us, and that God is a nurturing God. And I would encourage you, if you missed any of these talks, you can go on our website, valleypointchurch.com dot com under messages and you can listen to all of these and I would encourage you to do that and then we would encourage all of us that as we move forward keep asking your questions keep pursuing God keep bringing your questions to God and let's look to scripture to find answers and where we're unsure or where we're unclear let's go to God with those things and let's be honest before him and let's have a conversation with him, and let's commit as a faith community that while we might not get this perfect every time, and we may stumble our way through some of this, but let's seek truth in Scripture and in prayer, and I think if we commit to that, we're going to end up in a pretty good place. Would you pray with me as we conclude our question time today? God, thank you for your Scripture And for the information and the answers that it provides, there is something in there for every single life situation. You have not left us alone to fend for ourselves. You have given us guidance. And you have left your spirit with us to guide us even beyond our own understanding and our own capabilities. God, let us lean on that and let us bring our questions to you and our frustrations to you and our fears to you. Because you're not afraid of those. You're not offended by those. You desire those conversations with us. And help guide us through the upcoming months and into our new home. And we just thank you for your gracious hand of faithfulness being on our faith community. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you call Valley Point Church home or would like to make a donation, please go to valleypointchurch.com slash online giving. If you're in need of prayer, we would love to serve you in that way. Send us a message at prayer at valleypointchurch.com. Be blessed.